This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestofleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Colbert Report, The Tom Hartman Show, The Daily Show, Slate.com, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. Louis Gilmert is in the House. He's from Texas. He took a, a Blue Dog Democrat seat, I believe, in 06. Um, and uh, he was on the House floor uh, this week uh, talking about uh, corporate uh, taxes. And he doesn't want uh, $1 of uh, corporate tax money. He calls them, what's the word he's going to use here, JR? Insidious, JR says. He's going to use the word insidious. So let's listen to uh, uh, Representative uh, Gilmert on the floor of the House. You're going to start a trade war with somebody we owe over a trillion dollars to? You think that's smart? You don't realize we'll lose great jobs, union jobs, non-union jobs across America? How about instead doing something that doesn't trigger a trade war, that doesn't cause us to be penalized around the world? How about instead eliminating the 35% tariff we put on our own products for people in other countries trying to buy them. It's called a corporate tax. You eliminate the 35% tariff we've got on our own products, union jobs and non-union jobs come flooding back into America because we could compete with anybody if you take off that insidious tax that tells people across America you don't have to pay it. The evil corporations will pay it. Those corporations pass it on. If they don't, they don't stay in business. Yeah, uh, I, let me begin with uh, all the different ways that doesn't make any sense. Um, the 35% is on corporate profits. Right. It, it doesn't add a 35% cost to right. their bottom line, in which case their profits would be far, far less. Yes. So this is after they've already made a profit, you take 35% of that profit, okay? So what he's talking about makes no sense whatsoever. Right. I mean, I, I, Gomer's one of my favorites, so I, I know he doesn't even try to make sense often. But and then get second of all, get a load of the, his proposal: corporate tax rate zero yeah. percent, not reducing it from thirty-five to twenty-seven point eight zero. You know, by the way, look, the government's got to run, right? I mean. Even if you think government should be limited, et cetera, et cetera, there's massive defense spending. There's the money that Social Security and Medicare that you put in, but they've already spent, right, that they need to give back to you, the American people, right? So uh, among many other things that the government needs money for that I think almost all agree Americans would agree to. Now, if the, you eliminate the corporate tax, where is that money going to come from? It's going to come from you and me. They're going to have to take more from us. So it's not that Gomer's looking out for the average American. Quite to the contrary, he's looking out for the corporate executives and the shareholders at our expense, yeah. and then pretending to be against, you know, tax increases. It's yeah. a joke. We're not uh, fooled, uh, Representative uh, Gomer, by your use of the word tariff. <laughs> but you know, that's what it is. You use the word tariff, and we're like, did we fight the British to end the tariffs? I'm pretty sure we did. Say you want a revolution. Tell me that it's evolution, well...
talk about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out Don't you know it's gonna be Alright Alright Once again, liberals are exploiting our weak economy and trying to turn low-income Americans against the rich to take away our Bush tax cuts. The president charged forward on the subject of the Bush tax cuts. I want to know why he wants to end the tax cuts for those making high incomes. Is it to punish them because they make more than the national average? The president really seems to be doubling down on his class warfare rhetoric, uh, intent on raising these tax rates. It's very flatly and plainly a, a, a question of class warfare. Yes, clearly class warfare, rich versus poor. Well, technically poor versus other poor, the rich pay to fight for them. <laughs> now, fortunately, there is a new voice coming to Washington to lead us beyond meaningless differences like crushing wage inequality. And his arrival brings us to tonight's word. <laughs> Nothingness. I gotta say, I am still riding high from last week's midterm results. A GOP sweep is like Christmas, but with even more Jesus. <laughs> and I am particularly giddy about the election of Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. And I am not the only one. Kentucky Senator-elect Rand Paul was unabashed about the Tea Party's power coming into Washington. <clears throat> Let's listen to Rand Paul. <laughs> yeah. A lot of us, a lot of us are having trouble keeping our excitement down about Rand Paul. <laughs> and it's because of answers like the one he gave Wolf Blitzer on election night about how we can overcome our class differences. What if they just raise taxes on the richest, those making more than $250,000 a year? Well, the thing is, is we're all interconnected. There are no rich, there are no middle class, there are no poor. We all are interconnected in the economy. That's right. <laughs> Rand Paul sees beyond the illusions of this material plane, much like Buddha. There are, there are no rich, no poor, no middle class. You see, folks, the Rand Paul knows that we're all interconnected, just like the force. Some of us, some of us make billions of dollars in merchandising, while others dress up like Jedis in our parents' basements. And how does this unifying, omnifiscal force work? Paul explained. We all are interconnected in the economy. We all either work for rich people, or we sell stuff to rich people. See? We all work for rich people who, as previously explained, do not exist. It, it is like... It's like a Zen Buddhist cone. If you think about it long enough, it'll empty your mind. Okay, here's another good one. Here's another good one. If a poor family falls on hard times in the woods, and no one's around to care. Did it really happen? You see, now... Randism teaches us 
that we must protect the rich because we are the rich. In the unity of the free market, we are all part of one mystical body, just different parts of the same billionaire. <laughs> some of us, some of us are the hands, some are the feet, some of us are the well-fed mouth, while most working people are lowered down the digestive tract. That's why, that's why, folks, if we go ahead and, and tax the so-called rich, what we're really doing is taxing the poor because we're interconnected like yin and yang in that one side is mostly white. So, if you're suffering financially, remember, part of you right now is on a private jet. Just don't, just don't try to board that jet. Because the part of you that is an elite security team will break the part of you that walks. So to those out there who want to raise the taxes of the richest Americans, an unconscionable 4.6%, well, you're just trapping yourself in the mind cage of class war. Rand Paul exists on a higher plane. And in exchange, Folks, in exchange for putting him in the position where he can now defend the interests of the wealthiest 2% of Americans, he is offering everyone else the ultimate spiritual gift. Nothingness. <laughs> and that's the word. If you're like most Americans, then fighting traffic across town or flying across the country for business meetings is one of your favorite pastimes. Unfortunately, the same way sweets are making us fat, some of our favorite pastimes, like business travel, are killing the planet. And that's why my liberal guilt leads me to advocate for GoToMeeting. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with clients or coworkers online while sharing exactly what's on your screen, so it's just like meeting in person, minus the jet lag and exploded dinosaur remains. Listeners of this show can try out an unlimited number of meetings for 45 days by visiting gotomeeting.com and using the promo code PODCAST. That's gotomeeting.com, promo code PODCAST, for a special free 45-day trial. You've been, hearing, you've been hearing this for 29 years. Thank you, Jacob. And, and it'll be 30 years next January. And you've been hearing this stuff. Actually, you've been hearing it for longer than that because Reagan campaigned on it. So, you know, arguably 30 years, 31 years maybe even. And this, this idea that if rich people have more money in their pockets, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna give people jobs. And, uh, you know, I, I've said this before, it really bears repeating. If you're, if you're a guy who owns a factory and you're selling 5,000 units a, a month, of whatever you're making, you know, a, a, an, a, a new iPad kind of contraption or something like that, and and you suddenly get a tax cut, and you're taking a million dollars a year home, or you're taking a million dollar a year salary, you're paying 35% income tax on it, so you're taking $650,000 a year home, and you need, say, $200,000 a year to live on, you're going to put the other $450,000 where? Are you going to pour it back into your business? Well, you might if you knew that if you took more income, you'd see you'd bump up against the top tax rate. I mean, I've actually been there. In the 1970s, we had a company. My partner Terry O'Connor and I had a company, Woodley Herber, and 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 we were making enough money that I started hitting 
You know, I was getting up close to the 50 percent. This was back before the Reagan tax cuts. And I was getting close to the 50 percent tax bracket. And I was like, this is nuts. And so instead of taking the extra pay, I left the, the, the money in the business. And we used that money to increase our marketing budget, which increased demand, which brought more money into the company. But had my taxes as the business owner been lower, I would have taken the money out of the company and Louise and I would have stashed it in a Swiss bank account or something. I mean, just consider the logic of this for a minute. Business owners, if their taxes are high, if their tax rates are high when they start taking out more than a million dollars a year from their business, what are they going to do? They're going to leave the money in their business. I'm telling you, I've been there, I've done it. If their tax rates are low when they take massive amounts of money out of their business, as they are right now, I mean, this is why Louise and I sold the, the, the travel agency in 1986. It was because of the Reagan tax, tax cuts. We built this business from 1983 to 86. It's uh, the retail branch of Sprayberry Travel, the, the company's international wholesale travel. We built it from nothing, literally zero. We started with a $15,000 line of credit from my, on my American Express card. And we built it to a $6 million a year company in three years. And at that point, it was like Reagan had cut tax, capital gains taxes. So, hey, I'm getting the hell out of here, and I'm going to take my money and run. We moved to Germany for a year. We, we took the year off. Our kids traveled around the world. I mean, it was, it was a great year. And then we kind of ran out of money and <laughs> came back to the United States and started another business, started an ad agency. But the fact of the matter is that I didn't put that money back into the company. I didn't hire more people with it. I took it because my taxes were lower. And I knew that my taxes were going up the next year. So, you know, if over the long term my taxes had been steady as they were in the 1950s, the 1960s, and the 1970s, it was a, you know, that was it. Then what do you do? You, you keep the money in the business. And you grow the business. That business, by the way, is still around. It's done over a quarter of a billion dollars in business since we sold it. Should have kept it. <laughs> yeah, but it's still there still running in Atlanta, Georgia. And so, you know, the lesson is really simple. People who own businesses that are doing well, if they're looking at high personal income tax rates, if they suck a lot of money out of their business, will keep the money in the business and grow the business. But if you give them giant tax breaks like Reagan did to me in 1986, they will take the money out of the business and run with it. I mean, isn't this just common sense? How do these guys sell this stuff? I mean, they're, they're they are trying to sell, and and you know, Obama's out there. And this is again, you know, I had a I had a caller last hour saying, "Oh, you're being too critical of Obama." And, and Obama goes, "You know, that Republican economic snake oil they're selling. Come on, tell us what it is, Mr. President. It doesn't. It's not that complicated. I just told the story. I think everybody can get it. And my story's not unique. You could find a hundred small business people who did the exact same thing. Who back in the days, back in the seventies, when the top income tax rate was seventy-four percent, and it wasn't that hard to hit that. Well, it was hard to hit that rate, but I mean, you know, it was, it was still the top, probably three or four percent of Americans. But you know, once you hit that rate, it was like. Hey, wait a minute. I'm not going to take any more money out of my business because 74% of it's going to go to the government. I'm going to leave it in my business and let it make more money so that my business will increase in value so that when the day comes that I sell my business, I'll have, you know, a nice nest egg. This is how small business people think. 
any spot, you know, the, 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 now the people who are, and that's why you don't see huge institutions of small businesses or large numbers of small business people out there banging on the doors and, and of the news media saying, hey, I want a tax cut. Or if they are, it's because they don't give a damn about their small business. It's because they simply want to get the money and run. But the people who are pushing for, ta- for, for low taxes for millionaires and billionaires are guess who? People like, you know, the CEOs of giant health insurance companies who make, you know, $60, $70 million a year. Or hedge fund managers who, you know, the top 10 hedge fund managers on Wall Street who didn't produce one single damn productive thing. They didn't make one pair of shoes. They don't produce anything. The average income of the top 10 hedge fund managers on, on Wall Street last year was $2 billion. $2,000 million. There's 220, 240 working days in a year. That's over 10 million, almost $10 million for every single working day. How are you going to spend that money? And we should give these guys a tax break? For, for sending our economy into a tailspin? I'm telling you, you want business people to keep their money in their business? Do what the Republican Dwight Eisenhower did. Raise their taxes to 91% after the first million dollars. Before the first million, hey, pay a low rate. After a million, it starts going up. For the New York Times, they have co-authored a new book called All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History of the Financial Crisis. Please welcome back to the show, Bethany McLean and Joe Nocera. Thank you guys both for, for coming back uh, to see us. Uh, the book is called the, All the Devils Are Here, The Hidden History uh, of the Financial Crisis. Uh, I have to say... To your credit, the history of the financial crisis is no longer hidden. You have, you have laid it out in almost excruciating detail from start to finish in, in a really concise and, and clarifying manner. Uh, what is it like to stare into the heart of darkness, if it will? Uh, it wasn't that bad. Uh, More uh, like the lung of darkness. It got us mad. Yeah. You know? We were kind of mad before, and then we did this reporting mm-hmm. and found out all about the subprime, lousy subprime stuff and mm-hmm. the way Wall Street egged them on. And um, I was a lot madder when I finished than when I started. <laughs> I was. I, I it was, was actually a lot madder when I finished as well. <laughs> I thought it was all a big accident. And then after I finished the reporting, I didn't think it was all just a big accident. All right, time machine. Jonas, Sarah, Bethany, McLean, uh, they get in a time machine. Obviously, the first thing you do, you go back and kill Hitler. Second thing. <laughs> what do you, what's the one recipe, what's the one ingredient in the recipe for a financial disaster that you change, the most crucial ingredient that you think 
that triggered this entire financial collapse? I would have the Fed listen to the consumer advocates who started warning in the 1990s that people were getting loans they could never afford to pay back, and I would have had the regulators in Washington do something about that. Um, I would have regulated derivatives and maybe even not even allowed credit default swaps. See that, uh, you know, subprime has been uh, the big criminal here. We've all, everybody's talking about the subprime loans and all that, but it seems like credit default swaps, when they started allowing those in the late 90s, that turned what was your standard run-of-the-mill terrible financial decisions into a global catastrophe by allowing people to, and we talked about this earlier, credit default swaps allow people to make bets on loans that have nothing to do with them. And my premise to you guys is that this wasn't a failure of people understanding the financial institutions, this was a failure of people not understanding gambling that the reason that we failed is because the financial industry, they're bad gamblers. Most of them are, as it turns out. Merrill Lynch was a bad gambler. UBS was a great, there was only one good gambler in the whole deal, and that was Goldman Sachs, which figured out um, that, that, you know, they were on the wrong side of the bet and they got on the right side of the bet in time. Of course, they did it by screwing all their own clients, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> So the hero in this case. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you, and, and to maybe ex explain that further, the credit default swap are people basically betting on whether or not these loans will be successful or not. Correct. And the central thesis was real estate will never go down. Home prices will never decline. Had never happened since the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. Can never happen. End of, end of story. So they created a side bet where all the money went towards the over. Correct. Speaking as someone who has dabbled in the gambling arts. Really? <laughs> no bookie in the world lays off all his bets on one side without spreading a little bit of the risk or lays out so much money that if the call comes, he can't pay it. That, how does that groupthink take hold? Is it that they don't understand that it's gambling? That's why our favorite line in the book is a Merrill Lynch risk manager saying we fell for our own scam. They thought they were keeping the good stuff and they thought they were sending all the bad stuff off to other people. And so they thought when the calamity came it would be other people who paid the price, not them. And what Wall Street didn't understand is that they would pay the price too. So they thought, who did they think was going to pay the price in their minds? The idiotic clients. That, that they were selling this stuff. Okay, to. so that, that would be actually us. <laughs> yeah. But how come, if they're just middlemen moving around money, why isn't their profit just, again, to use a gambling analogy, why isn't it just the VIG? Why is it that they're making money that's not just transactional money? Well, because at, at a certain point, and this is why some of these firms blew up, at a certain point, they ran out of clients to sell the stuff to. So the only way they could keep the machine going, this is with the triple A's, the safest, safest, safest triple A's. Okay. The only way they keep the machine going is to put the triple A's on their own books. See? So they so infected they the, themselves. They, at they, the end of it, right. they, they themselves became vampires. And they thought, well, the triple B's, all those people will lose money, but our triple A's will be safe. Nothing will ever happen to them. We'll be, we'll be insulated from the problem. And, new, and new theory then on the financial crisis. It occurred because of an idiot shortage. <laughs> If we had only been able to, and again, let me take the role, let me take the role of the Fed here. 
If I'm uh, the Fed, I just print more idiots. If you could find more people who would have bought all the stuff Wall Street was producing and they could have kept just keeping the fees or the VIG, then all the bad stuff would have gone to all of us. And then ultimately when it all hit the fan. But see, these credit default swaps, that only became legal in the 90s, yes? Well, they were invented in the 90s. But in the old days, the bucket shops in the 20s and things, Wall Street used to always have side bets. And they made that illegal in the 20s. Along with Glass-Steagall and all that other stuff they did. That's right. right. That's right. But doesn't credit default swap bring back the legality of side bets? Sure. I mean, it, yes. Without but, question. But it's innovation. <laughs> <laughs> so in today's parlance, gambling is actually innovation. Yes, that's right. And go. clients are actually idiots. <laughs> if I may. Will you do me a favor, because this is, I, and uh, it must be, you, this is a very complex world, and to have somebody who's completely outside of it laying off these series can be frustrating, but perhaps, let's take, do you have a couple of minutes to hang around? Of course. Let me take it, we take a commercial break, we're going to put the rest of the discussion up on the web for about 10 minutes. I just want to find out if this, if I'm missing something, because I feel like I must be missing something, because <laughs> if I'm not, and I have a, 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 a a word that I've actually coined called cluster <laughs> All the devils are here. It's, you have to get this. It just lays out in excruciating detail, exactly, and you will read it and, and like the authors. It's on the bookshelves now. Bethany McLean and Jonas Sarah. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoyed this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Today's story is called Give the People What We Want, how both parties, but especially Republicans, use and abuse public opinion. And it's written by John Dickerson. If either party does half of what it says it's going to do about the budget deficit, the public is going to be furious. That's the clear message, if there is one, from all the recent public opinion polls. The public isn't that concerned about the budget deficit. It would prefer that politicians spend money on jobs first. When asked whether they support some of the ideas that might shrink the deficit, substantial majorities say no. And yet politicians keep talking about how they're going to force this bag of unpleasantness on the unwanting public. President Obama says cutting the deficit will be his main focus for the next two years. Republicans, giddy from big election wins, are anxious to start carving up the bloated federal government. 
That said, Republicans appear to be facing a larger gap between what they're planning to do and what the public actually wants. They're promising to shrink the size of government profoundly. Incoming House Speaker John Boehner has promised an adult conversation about entitlements. This all sounds very painful, and polls suggest the public doesn't like it. In a recent Quinnipiac University poll, 45% said they wanted more spending to create jobs. Only 32% said the highest priority should be reducing the deficit. In other polls, the number was lower. A recent CBS poll showed that only 4% cared about the deficit. People aren't desperate to go on a diet, so they're not willing to embrace any plans to shrink the buffet. According to a recent NBC poll, 70% of Americans say they would rather not cut programs like Medicare, Social Security, and Defense. 57% said they were uncomfortable with increasing the Social Security retirement age to 69 over the next 60 years. A recent CNN poll showed that people are extremely reluctant to cut any big areas of the federal budget. Faced with the choice of cutting a program to reduce the deficit or protecting the program from cuts, 79% opposed cuts to Medicare and 69% wanted to protect Medicaid. On Social Security, the equivalent figure was 78%. 60% or more favored protecting aid to farmers, college loans, and unemployment assistance. The country is split evenly on cutting defense spending. What do people want to cut? Government salaries, welfare, and the arts, which, depending on how you figure it, represent around 10% of the budget. Faced with such opposition, politicians usually get cold feet about touching the portions of the budget people favor. Former President Bush describes, in Decision Points, what happened when he tried to do this. Democrats opposed him only, and few in his own party supported him. This is not a popular issue. Taking on Social Security will cost us seats, a House Republican leader told him. In the end, Bush says, I needed strong Republican backing to get a Social Security bill through Congress. I didn't have it. There are some popular steps Congress can take, but they don't do much to solve the problem. For example, last week the GOP voted to do away with earmarks. This earmark ban shows the American people we are listening, says Boehner. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell flipped his position and supported the measure, saying that he was listening to the voters. This is worth pausing over. Once upon a time, Mitch McConnell delighted in bucking popular opinion. He was always against the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform law, for instance. Even when limits on campaign contributions received majority support in the public, he stood proudly against the tide. Yet it took him all of 14 days after the election to change his position on earmarks. While the budget choices are only getting harder, Republicans seem to be wedding themselves increasingly to the popular will. In the House, GOP leaders are turning legislation into a reality show they call You Cut. Every week, they will hold an Internet contest to select an item that should be removed from the budget. Whatever people pick, House Republicans will bring up for a vote. Last week, the target was funding for NPR. It failed. Democrats are still the majority for a moment. When politicians can't be in front of a parade of public opinion, they sometimes try to convince a reluctant public that something is a good idea. Obama tried to do this with health care, and it didn't work out. When he couldn't sell it before the legislation passed, he tried to sell it after the fact. That's what Nancy Pelosi meant when she said people would only know what was in the bill once it had passed. 
Republicans used that comment to kick Pelosi around for a few months. The public didn't buy this approach either. Republicans' most powerful political argument against the president was that he was ignoring public opinion, which in the Republican formulation was a reckless and arrogant thing to do. But having used this so effectively to pin down the president, and having ceded ever more of their legislating direction to the popular will, the Republican Party now finds itself caught between the conflicting demands of an ambivalent public. One way around this dilemma is to simply assert the public is behind you, whether it is or isn't. It's a neat trick, ignoring public opinion while using it to sell your positions. Representative Mike Pence is trying to pull it off when he argues for extending the Bush tax cuts for everyone permanently. We've got the American people on our side, he says. The polls don't agree. In a recent Quinnipiac poll, 57% of the public either wants the Bush tax cuts extended for only those families making less than $250,000 or not extended at all. A recent NBC poll found the same result. So did the exit polls on Election Day. The more common practice for a politician in Pence's position, when he has to do something more stringent than hand out lollipops, is to get out the theme music and say he's doing it on principle. That's what Bush did with Social Security reform. Alternatively, he can pretend he alone has some special ability to divine the will of the American people. So how will Republicans get out of the box into which they've packaged themselves? They may try to do what Obama was incapable of, convince the public to do something it doesn't want to do. They could get the president's help in this. He says he shares their goal of reducing the national debt. But the question is whether either side will be willing to show its hand. The first party to announce support for an unpopular reduction may get stuck with the blame. One way around this problem is trust. If each side trusts the other, then it matters less which side goes first. But in Washington right now, the trust deficit almost matches the fiscal one. We want freedom of speech But we all talking at the same time We say we want peace But nobody wants to change their own mind On and on and on and on and on For a thousand years A thousand years I say Alright, look, if you think you've heard the subprime mortgage story, you ain't heard nothing yet. Because what you're about to hear is both unbelievable and may represent the largest fraud ever perpetrated on the American consumer. 820,000 Americans have already lost their homes this year due to foreclosure by the big banks that caused the economic collapse with their predatory lending in the first place. It's true that some homeowners had it coming because they signed mortgages they couldn't possibly pay. But many, many more are being kicked out of their homes because courts simply want to process foreclosures as fast as possible, even when it could be proven that the owners paid their mortgages on time, and even when the banks can't produce the paperwork that they even own the mortgage. Matt Taibbi is a contributing editor for the Rolling Stone. He wrote the story in the current issue, and the title says it all, Invasion of the Home Snatchers, How the Courts Are Helping Bankers Screw Over Homeowners and Get Away with Fraud. 
All right, a lot to talk about here, Matt. First, let's talk about the original problem. How did this uh, problem start in the first place? Okay, way back in the day when you took out a mortgage, you were, you were usually doing it with a local bank or a credit union, a human being who knew who you were and wasn't going to give you a mortgage if you were an unemployed drug addict because they actually cared whether or not you were going to pay off that loan. Uh, so that was where their credit risk was based. They weren't going to make money if you if you didn't have any income. So let me just stop you right there because sure. that bank, since it's going to hold the mortgage, has all the incentive in the world to make it a good mortgage right. so it gets paid back. Right. Right? Okay. Right. So how did the system change? Two things happened. First, they invented this process called securitization, by which you can take not one mortgage, but a whole bunch of them, hundreds or thousands, put them in a big bucket, chop them up, and make them into securities. That uh, method allowed lenders to take their loans and then sell them off to somebody else on a secondary market. That was the first part of the problem. The second thing is they invented these fancy derivative tools like CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, that allowed them to take those buckets full of chopped up loans and divide them up into tiers uh, where you had AAA ratings on what sometimes were entire buckets full of subprime loans. It's complicated, but the essence of it is uh, you could take subprime loans and sell them off as AAA rated securities that were, that, and AAA means credit risk almost zero. So you took something that's actually worth very, very little and you sold it as something that's worth a lot. So going to those graphics, the second one talked about how bad loans actually got them more money. Since their bank X is no longer keeping the mortgage and passing right. it off to bank Y. Right. They, they have no downside, right? They're not keeping right. the mortgage. So right. that, that gives them an incentive to make as many mortgages as possible. But what, tell us why the worst loans actually got them better returns. Well, the, the more risky the loans are, uh, the higher rates of return that they, that they pay. Uh, so that was the bottom part of these deals. That was called toxic waste, and that was sold out very quickly uh, to investors. But the AAA portion of it, this is the key, is that you could take subprime loans and sprinkle some fancy math on them and turn them into AAA-rated bonds and sell them off to people like pension funds, foreign trade unions, sovereign wealth funds, and ultimately the taxpayer, you and me. This was a scam that involved taking stuff that was worth nothing and selling it off to investors all over the world who didn't know what it was. And it always, of course, comes back to us, and that was the third graphic, where we're the suckers. Right. Whether it was the taxpayers at the end or the pensions that bought into it, thinking that it was safe, when, and here's the critical part, when the banks knew they weren't safe, right. that's where the fraud comes in, right? Right, so of course. So now they go to foreclose on those fraudulent mortgages right. and commit a second layer of fraud. Tell us about that. Well, after these banks sold off these fraudulent loans, and again, just as you were saying, most of these banks knew that this stuff was actually going to blow up. They knew that, uh, you know, in some cases there was only 1% equity in these deals, that people didn't put down any money, or that there was no identification, or that half the people in the, in the deals didn't have jobs or any, any real income. They were selling it off to all these people, uh, and now what they're trying to do is foreclose on those properties uh, so that they can... You know, now they've already they've dumped these loans off on somebody else, and they just want to get rid of these deals. They never did the paperwork after they sold them off to those people because why bother? You've already committed fraud. You've already dumped it off on somebody else. Why keep up the paperwork? Legally, they had to. They had to legally pass the note from one person to the next each time they did a sale, but they just didn't do it. So they're incentivized now, if I've got this right, to make sure you foreclose as quickly as possible because that means you can close up the fraudulent loans and and be done with them. Right. So that gets rid of your 
your fraud quicker, right? Is that is that the main essence of it? Yeah, that's that's part of it. There's a, there's another factor here that in some cases they actually don't have an incentive to work it out with the homeowner because they actually owe their investors the entire amount of your mortgage. Uh, so if you're only paying 70% of, of the mortgage in modification, they owe that other 30% out of their own pocket. So their incentive is not to work it out with you, but to foreclose as quickly as possible. And that's why they're rushing it through the courts as fast as they can. Now, if you read Matt's piece, it, it, it explains in detail how some of these mortgages, they, they don't have signatures. They, some of them, the mortgages are made up. It's obvious that they're made up, right? There, is, so, there are amazing cases. I, I, saw, I saw one case where, where the bank actually said, we are the owner and holder of the note, and we have lost the note and, uh, and are unable to locate it. In the same page. <laughs> how can that be possible? Of course it's not possible. So, Matt, here's the thing that drives, I think, a lot of people crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So, we can see, you can see it, we can see it, it's obvious. That right. means the government can see it. Now, why is the government, as you explained throughout your piece, helping the bad guys instead of helping the people that are supposed to protect the consumers? I think there are two reasons. On, on the local level, on the level of these judges, a, a lot of them are retired judges who just are, are simply not used to seeing this. Back when they were active judges in the day, they just didn't have these sorts of problems. They never saw securitized mortgages, so they're, they're used to reflexively accepting the arguments of plaintiffs and banks. Uh, you know, they're used to dealing with the idea that people owe money and they shouldn't be in their home. So let's give a rubber stamp to the foreclosure. On another higher level, though, there's a bigger problem with all these mortgage-backed securities. The banks and the Fed, you and I, the taxpayer, we're all owners of billions and billions of dollars worth this, of this stuff. But if we actually start turning over some of these rocks, we're going to find they're actually worth five or ten cents on the, on the dollar. And if people actually start investigating, we, we may have another crash because there's all these overinflated assets everywhere. We could have another crash, and then the Fed and the Treasury would have to say, oh, yeah, right, we were the suckers who signed on to this. Right. We and we let billions. them get away with it in the first place. Exactly. Right. We bought billions of dollars of this stuff from these people in the, during the bailout, and we and you know we knew it was bad, and we bought it anyway. And they're never going to admit that. Real quick, last question for you. You're talking about fraud. Should some of these bankers get arrested? Absolutely. I mean, the only person who's gone to jail in this entire financial crisis was Bernie Madoff, right? But each one of these real estate deals was really a little Bernie Madoff. I mean, that's really what it was. They're, they're all these, these little Ponzi schemes, each one of them. Uh, you know, it's essentially the same kind of investor fraud, and nobody's gone to jail, and certainly somebody should. And I'll tell you why they didn't, because Bernie Madoff ripped off rich people. Right. And you right. don't want to do that. That'll get you in a lot of trouble. Right. You're up off a lot of little average consumers. Huh, well, that's no problem at all, right? right. And that's the problem here, and we got to fix it. Matt, it was a great piece of Rolling Stone. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having really me. Really appreciate it. The jobs that we've lost are not coming back. Jobs are not coming back. The great middle class jobs, the ones that we associate with that, the sort of the golden era of the 50s and 60s when you could make a good living, you could support right. a family. Those jobs really seem not only to not be coming back, but to be vanishing. Yeah, whatever happened to those golden era jobs of the 50s and the 60s? When a man could kiss his wife and eight children goodbye, 
and then say, see you later, honey, I'm off to install asbestos in a whites-only fallout shelter. <laughs> Sad. Sad, really. Luckily, luckily, ladies and gentlemen, the Republicans are back in power, and they are totally focused on unemployment. Just listen to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Our top political priority over the next two years should be to deny President Obama a second term. See? They'll just get Obama unemployed. <laughs> then maybe they'll focus on getting you a job. Because they know things are terrible right now. So they're planning to make some bold changes. Republicans are united uh, to stand for keeping the tax cuts in place. Uh, this is how we create jobs. I think extending all of the current tax rates and making them permanent would be the most important thing we could do to help create jobs in the country. We got a chance to do some things early on to create jobs by extending the tax cuts. Yes, extending the existing tax cuts will create jobs. Because the only way out of this mess is to keep things exactly as they are. But, you know, you know who really, really creates jobs in this country? Small business. So if we're looking for ideas on job creation, we should really ask a small business person. So I will. Here now is the president of America's only marble manufacturer, Marble King, Please welcome the Marble Queen, Barry Fox. Barry, thanks so much for coming. Now, these are some of your quality marbles. Here's what's see Made in America. There's a little flag right there. Now, madam. Yes. How has business been for the marble manufacturer over the last 10 years? We weren't the only marble manufacturer over the last 10 years, but we are now. And that just shows how foreign imports have had such a dramatic impact mm -hmm. on all manufacturing in this country. How much of the blame is on the foreign imports and how much of it is on the kids out there playing with their Xboxes and not playing with That's the marbles? That's a good point. That's, That's a good an point. excellent point. Thank you. But yes, it is. <laughs> You're a great guest. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but no, it, I mean, there's, we had to diversify our product, you know, our product line as kids changed and, and as their mm -hmm. interests changed. So our marbles don't just go to kids' toys or to games any longer. You know, they are very diverse. And, you know, that little rattle you hear in a spray paint can every yep. time you shake it? Yep. It's one of our marbles. Wow. Seriously. So. That is, that is market penetration. It is. Okay, now, these are, these are clearly high-quality high marbles here. What, 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 if you were, as a small business leader, okay, if you could wave a magic wand and tell the government to do something for small business, what, what would it be? Extend the tax cuts to the richest 2% of Americans? Absolutely first? not. No. No, that wouldn't be my recommendation, really. It would not. What would be the first thing you would do? Level the playing field. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means that China can land their product here. And I'll use our marbles as an example. 28 cents a pound, and that's bringing them clear across the ocean and delivered to any site in America. 21 cents a pound, or 28 cents a pound. Our cost of energy alone is 21 cents a pound. That's just our natural gas cost to, to make these. I mean, it's not a level playing field. They're subsidized. You know, not only so their government energy, is paying absolutely to help them make the marbles. And then bring them here and dump them very inexpensively, taking our jobs. Madam, if I can use a metaphor from the world of marbles, it sounds like our government is not playing for keeps. And they should be. And, and you know what? And we are losing our marbles. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely.
Absolutely, that's true. What about, is Obamacare killing you? No, actually Obamacare, the health care yeah. reform has been good for us. We're a small company. But how can it be? It's a socialist program and socialists hate business. <laughs> I'm just telling you that I went to um, an educational seminar last week. They made me go. I had to go. I wasn't a choice. If I'm providing health care, I have to go. So I went. And I learned that there really are benefits for us from a manufacturing standpoint, from a business standpoint, and it's a benefit for our employees as well. Okay, so how can, how can, how can the government help you? Okay, so level the playing field, do you mean tariffs? Tariffs would help. Ta there, marble zero, tariffs. There are zero tariffs on any imports coming in, marble related, zero. <laughs> Really, we've yes. left this sector unprotected. Yes, isn't that hard The marble sector is unprotected. But it is. It's totally unprotected. Well, if I can just encourage the children out there, this is a fun, only mildly choking hazard game. <laughs> you can play it on the carpet on a rainy day. You can play it outside. You can put them in slingshots and harm each other with them. Don't tell them that. Play marbles. No, no. Yes, play You're saving marbles. American jobs. Absolutely. Barry Fox, thanks so much. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. Presidential leadership on dealing with the national debt over the course of my entire lifetime has been something that has really gone along party lines. In empirical terms, Democrats have done a much better job than Republicans have. Now, if that feels counterintuitive to you, if there's a voice in your head that's saying, hey, wait, the Republicans are the fiscal conservatives, it's the Democrats who are the irresponsible profligate spenders, that if there is a voice in your head that is saying that, that's because the press has been quite content to listen to what Republicans say they are doing rather than actually reporting on what they are doing on fiscal issues. A perfect case in point today on Capitol Hill. Senate Republicans holding a press conference that they say is all about well, here, listen. We have a great opportunity here to demonstrate that we are responding to what the American people clearly would like for us to do. Cut the spending, cut the debt. Hopefully the Democrats will join us as we embark upon an agenda that tries to rein in out-of-control government, get spending and debt under control. We have clearly heard the American people say focus on jobs, the economy, the debt, and the spending, and they were screaming out loud, stop the spending. Stop the spending, cut the debt. That's what Republicans say their priorities are. Cutting the deficit, cutting the debt. That's what they say they are doing. What are they actually proposing to do? Republicans are absolutely determined to oppose any tax increase on any American uh, in, in the coming months. We're going to continue to fight in the House uh, to make sure that no American sees a tax increase on January 1, not one. 
tax cuts. Tax cuts first priority. Now, of course, both parties want tax cuts right now for the first $250,000 of income that anyone earns. The difference between the two parties, the difference between Democrats and Republicans, is that Republicans want to make sure that you get tax cuts on any income you earn over your first quarter of a million dollars. According to Republicans, if you make more than $250,000 a year, you should get a tax cut on all of the income above that level, in addition to getting tax cuts <clears throat> on income below that level. In order to achieve just that extra amount of tax cuts, just for the rich people, just for people earning over $250,000, Republicans are will, in order to do that, Republicans are willing to add $700 billion to the debt. $700 billion. In addition to tax cuts, Senate Republicans also laid out this objective today. And certainly, uh, the healthcare, new health care law, we're going to work together to repeal and replace this health care law. Repeal health reform. On the same day that Republicans redoubled their efforts to kill health reform, the nonpartisan Government Accountability Office highlighted that the Democrats' new health reform law, if fully implemented, would result in a, quote, notable improvement in the long-term debt outlook. Earlier this year, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office calculated that health reform would reduce the deficit by $138 billion. Republicans apparently want that $138 billion added back onto the deficit. Then there's the issue of defense spending. A majority of all the discretionary spending that we have in this country is defense spending. And because Republicans want to be thought of as fiscal conservatives, a number of Republicans who have just been elected to office are now making noises that they'd be willing to consider defense cuts. That is fiscally great in the abstract. The problem is when it comes down to actually making those decisions. Here's the top Republican on the House side. His name is Republican Congressman Buck McKeon of California. He's the top Republican on the House Armed Services Committee. What does he think about this defense cuts idea? Yesterday, Mr. McKeon said of the defense cuts, quote, let me put this in the simplest terms possible. Cutting defense spending amidst two wars is a red line for me and should be a red line for all Americans. On the Senate side, the top Republican on the Armed Services Committee is a man you might have heard of named John McCain. Senator John McCain now leading the charge in the Republican Party against anyone in his party who would dare suggest any cuts to defense. Yesterday, he went after Republican Rand Paul, saying, quote, already he has talked about withdrawals from or cuts in defense, etc., and a number of others are too. So I worry a lot about the rise of protectionism and isolationism in the Republican Party. In other words, defense cuts, not on my watch. And I'm the guy who's on watch for our party on this. Last month, 57 members of Congress signed on to a report that proposed $960 billion worth of cuts that could come out of the defense budget. Precisely one Republican was willing to put his name on that. One, Congressman Ron Paul of Texas. One of that report's biggest ticket proposed cuts was nuclear weapons. Since, you know, we already have more than, more than 5,000 of them and you can only blow up the world so many times. So let's save a little money, right? Let's maybe cut back on the nuclear weapons. That would save a lot of money. Republican Senator John Kyle of Arizona is the Republican who is making the direct Republican response to that. As of today, John Kyle's response has been to secure $14 billion of brand new nuclear weapons spending from the Obama administration, and he's apparently holding out for more. In case you were curious just how serious Republicans are about cutting defense, that's what we've got so far. 
And of course, it's an article of faith that Republicans are totally against cap-and-trade climate legislation, right? The Congressional Budget Office estimates that cap-and-trade, which remember was a Republican idea in the first place, cap-and-trade would reduce the deficit by $19 billion. Republicans are against that too. Think about the distance between what Republicans say they are doing and what they are actually proposing. Republicans spent all day bragging about how much they want to cut the deficit, while simultaneously proposing adding to the deficit $700 billion, plus $138 billion, plus $14 billion, plus $19 billion, all added to the deficit as they proclaim that they want to cut the deficit. But because they are banking on the press only writing down what they say they're going to do, rather than what they're actually proposing, Republicans also took time today at their press conference to name drop a new Republican senator named Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio inexplicably has been made into the Republicans' showcase freshman for fiscal conservatism. Our goal is, as a country should be to make sure that the next generation is a period of American exceptionalism or American greatness, as our new Senator Marco Rubio talks about. Mr. Rubio, it should be noted, has been very specific about what his economic plan is coming to Washington. And because he says he's a fiscal conservative, you've probably heard that he's a fiscal conservative. But what's his actual plan? Well, in addition to all the generic Republican proposals to add hundreds of billions of dollars to the deficit, Marco Rubio also wants to make changes to tax policy on the alternative minimum tax and the estate tax, changes that would add an additional $989 billion to the deficit. And while he's proposing that, he would like you to say that he is a fiscal conservative. Just say it. It's like me insisting to you that I am short and pretty. <laughs> Actually, I'm enormous and I'm sort of average looking. I mean, come on, somebody should report. Somebody should report so we can decide what it is that Republicans are actually proposing, not just what they are saying about what they're proposing. And this is not a new situation. Republican presidents have always tried to sell themselves, have always tried to sell the whole Republican ideology as if it's about somehow cutting down the red ink, getting back into the black, getting deficits under control, cracking down on the debt. But look at what they've done. Democratic presidents have exactly the opposite reputation on debt issues, but if you look at their record, they're the ones who've actually walked the walk. This year's crop of congressional Republicans are proposing adding to the deficit billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars for tax cuts for rich people, for new nuclear weapons, so oil companies don't have to deal with cap and trade, so health insurance companies don't have to insure sick people. Those causes are important enough to these supposedly fiscally conservative Republicans that they are willing to add hundreds of billions of dollars to the deficit in order to accomplish those goals. Debt be damned, deficit be damned, we don't care, those things are too important. But you know who they say has got to sacrifice? Here's the headline from today's Wall Street Journal about what's expected from the lame duck Congress. Spending worries put jobless benefits at risk. Even though Republicans are willing to spend hundreds of billions of dollars for all of those other things, you know where they draw the line? People without jobs. People who have paid into the unemployment insurance system and now would like to collect. People without jobs need to go without. Hey, Got to tighten your belt. Tax cuts for rich people? Sure. New nuclear weapons? Sure. Subsistence funding for the unemployed? Sorry, no way. Got to be fiscally responsible. Writing down what they say is not reporting. If you just write down what they say, that's called 
publicizing. Writing down what they actually do, what they are proposing in terms of policy, that is reporting. And it is the distance between what they say and what they are actually doing that is the news. Jonathan Klein calling from the left coast. Uh, just wanted to get my two cents in about the education uh, debate that's going on. I guess more so idea conjuring. There's a few things that have been in my mind since I was a teacher uh, at a few schools in high school. High school start times have to change. Uh, we have to allow for the fact that high school students developmentally they need their sleep. They need to sleep until like eight or nine, and they don't get tired until 11 or 12 because their serotonin levels are not developed that well too much. We need to pay attention to biology of the people we're teaching. Okay, I'm a biology teacher, what can I say? Also, I think we need to look to the fact that in summer, there is such drop-off that I think we need to get rid of how long summer is. I think we need to bring it down to a month, maybe extend spring break to a month long as opposed to just two weeks. Okay, that's my two cents. Maybe actually about fifty. Have a good day. Hi, Jay. My name is Alex. I live in Reading, Pennsylvania. I just want to say I love the show. I also wanted to suggest a charity, uh, Transition US, is a, a nonprofit organization that's trying to bring communities together and form resilience you know, for all the environmental and economic crisis going on in the world. Uh, they have a, currently have a grant right now. If they raise $100,000 by the end of the year, they're getting matched with another $100,000. So if you'd like to donate, you can donate at transitionus.org. Um, love the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who left messages to be played on the show. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, activist call to action, or suggest a charity people should be donating to this holiday season, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Today, I think this is exciting. I, I, I got this suggestion from a great listener, Harry, who is uh, also, if memory serves, he's also responsible for me uh, knowing about uh, both the bugle which people seem to love and citizen radio which many of you love and many of you don't but uh harry wrote in recently saying that i should take some time at the end of these shows uh every, at least every once in a while to give a little bit more detail about some of the sources that i use because you know you guys might hear bits and clips but you don't really know behind the scenes if you don't go check them out and so i should tell you about them uh, and encourage you to go check them out yourself. And so I'm excited to do that. I thought it was a good idea. And I'm very excited to be able to start this uh, source story series with a show that is both one of the oldest and one of the newest shows that I listen to. And so to introduce the show, I want to play a little something for you. And if you were listening to this show back in the day when it used to be on Air America Radio and you have the same reaction I did when I heard this song recently, uh, this song will bring a, a nice, comforting wave of nostalgia for you. 
So hopefully this song means something to at least some of you out there. To me, it means the majority report's about to start. It means that it's about 2004. I've just gotten to work delivering pizzas out in California. Uh, you know, this, this afternoon is over. The sun's going down. I'm in my car, and the conversation about politics in America is about to get fun. You know, uh, the Majority Report was hosted by Sam Cedar and Janine Garofalo. It was one of the original shows to launch with Air America Radio, and they, you know, they brought a young, fresh, uh, and and comedic angle to the conversation about politics. And they uh, literally, like, this show was the first place I ever heard the word blog was on the Majority Report. Uh, the first place I ever heard about the Daily Kos was the Majority Report. It's it's really likely, I, I don't have a, an exact memory of it, but it's extremely likely the first place I ever heard the word podcast was almost certainly on the Majority Report, said either by one of the hosts or by uh, a guest that they had on, talking about the new media that was coming to take over, the new media that was you know growing and strengthening and becoming part of the mainstream conversation. Uh, blogs were beginning to become influential in national politics and national media, and they really predicted a lot of what has come to pass in terms of the new media and and how uh, the liberal perspective is getting uh, you know such so much more play in that medium than in traditional media. So to me, the thought of the majority report, the sound of that song, you know, it it, it feels like it's fall. It feels like, uh, you know, I'm running from my car to the customer's house delivering their pizza and then back to the car and I'm going as quickly as I can so that I can get back in the, in the car, not only where it's warm and cozy, but where the majority report is playing because I don't want to miss anything that's being said there. And now flash forward, uh, you know, maybe a year or so, I have a new job. I, uh, you know, it's still bad, but I'm, and I'm still delivering. I'm still uh, driving around all the time. I'm driving a FedEx truck and I'm, you know, I had that same instinct about the majority report. I love it. Uh, at this point, instead of listening to air America on terrestrial radio, I've switched to Sirius satellite radio. And I did that for a little while. I thought, you, you know, it'll be a, a good way. You know, I'd, I'd fallen in love with radio by this point and I just wanted to hear as much radio as I could, you know, and, and get in touch with, uh, with everything that was available. And so I would listen to the majority report every, every night, obviously. And during the commercials, of course I would flip around cause no one listens to commercials. So when the majority report would have a commercial, I would flip to the other liberal station that Sirius had available. Uh, there was air America. And then I think it was called Sirius left. And on Sirius Left, during the commercials of the Majority Report, I found a little show called The Young Turks. And this created the most painful but the most glorious problem you can possibly have, where I struggled so hard to figure out which one of these shows I wanted to listen to. Uh, you know, The Majority Report I had loved for you know many, many months or, or more than a year. The Young Turks were brand new. I didn't know them. I had no idea what they were about, but they were hilarious and, uh, and and really, you know, informative and passionate as well. And that is very much the origin story of how I uh, first came in touch with the Young Turks and uh, the rest is history. Now, flash forward all the way to November 2010, 
meaning last month, the majority report has just relaunched. And uh, unfortunately, Janine Garofalo is not on board with it, but Sam Cedar has has gone through a series of different projects uh, throughout the years. He, you know, was with Air America until the end, essentially, uh, has done a few things online, and and now his his newest project is to relaunch the Majority Report at majority.fm. So things have kind of come full loop for him, and when, when I heard that that had relaunched, I was very excited. I went, I you know, found the podcast feed, which is available on iTunes uh, and on their website, obviously. Downloaded all of the archives and started from the from the beginning, and uh, and I'm very excited to say that the majority part is is back, and uh, and he has like all of the same music and sound clips that they used, you know, back six years ago, and so it. You know, it's not just the same host, but it's the same feel. It has the same essence as the original Majority Report, uh, you know, minus Janine, obviously. But uh, it's really just, you know, great to hear, great to have him back. And uh, so that's my story about the Majority Report. And obviously, I suggest you go check it out, uh, get on board with the new podcast. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and support him. Speaking of support, I just want to thank a couple of my supporters. Carolyn H. signed up for a monthly membership back on September 23rd and has stuck with the show since then. And Steve C. signed up for a membership today, December 2nd. And the reason I'm thanking Steve is because he's the very first uh, member of the show who paid for his membership by phone. This is a brand new system that I have available. Uh, for those of you who have uh, you know sent in emails, and you want to support the show, but you hate PayPal with a fiery passion, or you had an account and something went wrong with it, and now you can't use it, I have a way that you can pay by phone. If you'd like to do that, just send me an email, and I'll get back to you with details about that. It was funny, when Steve called in, uh, and I answered, and... He was a little puzzled for a moment. He thought he was going to be calling into like an automated system. Uh, and no, you know, and, and as I explained to him, on one hand, it would be kind of nice if I had an automated system to do this, uh, but I don't. But on the other hand, it's kind of nice that it's uh, so personal like that. So <laughs> so for those of you who uh, would like to make a donation, you know, not a recurring donation for like a membership, but just an individual uh, donation payment, uh, you can do it by phone and uh and it will be done in a very personal way. I will be the one taking your order, uh, entering in your card number, do 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 do, sending you a receipt, and so on and so on. So that's it for today. Stay connected with the show on Facebook and Twitter. Get details about the show, including links to sources and music used in this and every episode in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought by now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be Shadow bases of soul.